With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is Thursday. It's February 23rd of 2012. And tonight, our guests will be Bart Mayur, who is from St. Anne's Corner on Harm Reduction in the Bronx. And our second guest will be Candy Leitner, who is the founder of MAD and who has moved on and is now doing other things with drunk drunk driving prevention, and we're going to hear what she's up to these days. I know she's working with the breathalyzer ignition interlock. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to putting all together. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, you can go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. And our first guest tonight is waiting right here, Bart Mayur, who is uh, he's originally from the Netherlands, I believe, but he's been working in New York City for a long time. He's with St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction in the Bronx. And welcome to the show, Bart. Hi, Ken. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background, your history. How did you get involved with harm reduction? Well, I was, uh, I'm was i indeed from the Netherlands. I was born and raised in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, I, um, and, and decided to, uh, to study uh, psychology. And while I was studying psychology, I realized that a lot of people, this was in the, in the 70s, uh, uh, 1970s, and I realized that a lot of people uh, were studying psychology and that they had to find a topic that was uh, that made me stand apart from uh, all that competition. And when I looked around at that moment, what was the hot topic was the new drugs, the new generation of drug, LSD, uh, cannabis, heroin, that was uh, you know, all over in, in Amsterdam, a lot of... Uh, drug tourists sleeping in the parks it was a, it was a new uh, completely uh, yeah a completely new problem that uh, the the people who were governing the city had, had had never dealt with before traditional addiction systems were not ready to uh, to tackle the problem and so as soon as i finished my studies uh, the the university was called do you have anyone who can uh, um, you know who who wants to work in a CBO and uh, that that can take care of this this issue and you know there I went and that's how I entered the field and and at that moment it was about harm reduction there was a lot of money for the any new IDs that dealt with this new generation of drug drug users and um, and thank God uh, the drug policy was and basically still is very liberal in the Netherlands compared to the United States. So, the, the, yeah, the, 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 the approach was, uh, you know, we can accept that people are using. We just want to keep the situation, make the situation safer, healthier, and better manageable. 
so that maybe other things can happen than just running after the next fix. And basically that's what I've been doing uh, since then, uh, 15 years in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam, Amsterdam. And late in 95, I moved to the United States, started working in the Bronx at St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction as the deputy and clinical director. And that's where I'm still working. Okay, I'm going to ask you a little bit about uh, the Netherlands. We hear a lot in uh, the United States about there's cannabis cafes in Amsterdam. Uh, does this work out well, or is, are there problems associated? What do you think of it? Well, I think it's, uh, well, yeah, it's 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 like asking uh, an American, um, how about uh, how about your beer? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's completely normalized uh, since the 1970s. There hasn't been any arrest uh, for uh, possession or for personal use of uh, of cannabis. Uh, as you say, uh, in the beginning we there were more. We worked with house dealers. Now, since uh, over the past 20, 30 years, it's the the coffee shops, as you mentioned. And it's a completely normalized situation. You uh, you go in there, you uh, uh, you know, you get a menu. On the left side is the hashish, the right side is marijuana, the different sorts, the prices, and you make your pick. You you smoke it there, you smoke it in the street, but most people smoke it normally at home, and nobody really looks at it. And it's 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 a very normal, integrated uh, situation around cannabis in the Netherlands. Uh, lately, there are uh, a little bit uh, there. There are some problems because the government is uh, right more right wing due to the you know to the economic crisis in Europe and also in the Netherlands. And so, what you see is that mainly due to drug tourism, there's a lot of people you know coming from Germany, you know the the the, the, the bordering countries, Germany and the eastern part and uh, Belgium and France in the south that are crossing the border to buy uh, cannabis because we're still an, an, an island in Europe in terms of our more liberal drug policies. And that's at the same time the most, you know, the biggest danger that, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's so much demand that the infrastructure that we have, and that's working well, as I just explained, is, uh, you know, is being uh, overused by tourism. Also from the United States, by the way, there's still flights going out that uh, go to Amsterdam just for that. Oh, yes. I hear about that from uh, friends of mine every now and then that they have visited uh, Amsterdam right. just for that purpose. Uh, well, not just for that purpose, but they're, they're very interested in trying that out. Um, on a side note, uh, if I recall... And one more thing before, before hmm. we move on. Please there's, go ahead. there's always an interesting aspect to this thing because people... Um, uh, people expect that uh, everybody in Netherlands must, in the Netherlands, must be smoking and 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 basically walks around stoned all day. Well, when you look at the statistics, and this is not from yesterday or uh, a week ago or uh, over the past year. Uh, this is this is the trend over the past 30, 40 years. Is that the situation in the uh, USA, and when, when when you talk about past month prevalence of cannabis use in the USA in the Netherlands, and you compare these two, uh, and pre there's pretty good research in both of our countries, um, what you see is that basically the level of use in the Netherlands is 50% lower than in the United States. So that's always, I find, a very interesting 
uh, aspect to the whole situation. You expect, you know, that the, you know, in 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 with such a liberal policy that, that there would be much more users, but it happens to be the opposite. So, the forbidden fruit seems to be working here again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not totally surprising. Um, when we look at prohibition of alcohol in the U.S., we don't really have good numbers of how much sales there were during prohibition, but we saw a lot of extremely reckless use. A lot of people drinking and driving and drinking publicly and showing off. And, uh, you know, a lot of this reckless use that was really displayed, just right. when alcohol became legal again, it there was no reason to show off anymore that you were special because you were drinking. Right. Well, that's that's certainly uh, – well, there, there were more aspects to it, of course. I mean, it's it's easier to smuggle, you know, a concentrated form of alcohol than uh, a beer or wine, which was uh, perfectly available before 1920 when alcohol uh, uh, became prohibited in the U.S. But it, it, uh, it certainly is true that a lot of uh, – uh, people that who weren't drinking before or hardly started drinking, uh, that uh, dangerous forms of alcohol were, were being consumed, and basically people started drinking for the effect and not for the you know not for the pleasure or the social uh, uh, yeah the social substance as as it were that 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 it should be. Okay, I'm going to ask you a few more things about the Netherlands before we move on to what you're doing in the Bronx. Uh, and one's a little side note, but uh, is prostitution, is sex work uh, treated, uh, how's that treated in uh, the Netherlands? Uh, it's also legal. Oh, it's completely it's legal. Yeah, it's all legalized. It's basically for the same uh, uh, for the same reason. When you when you legalize something, you can you have it on the table in front of you. You can uh, uh, you know you 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 can organize. Uh, uh, all kinds of things around it. You can tax it. You you know it's visible. It's transparent what's happening, and uh, and certainly around prostitution, uh, it has taken away a lot of the bad uh, you know the bad side effects when when some you know when when something like that is illegal and and you know like uh, like substance use uh, use of legal illegal substances. Uh, prostitution is, is is something that won't go away. That will be there. Has always been there. And uh, and so they decided uh, a long time ago that that should be something that's legalized. And and that's what it is. And uh, do sex workers get regular medical exams? And does this reduce uh, sexually transmitted diseases? Of course. Yeah. No. That's that's a big uh, that's a big part of you know they. Uh, uh, they, they need to have permits, and with the permit becomes a certain kind of registration. With that comes, uh, you know, that they that they have uh, regular checkups uh, uh, with the municipal health authorities to, uh, you know, to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, that STIs are uh, are not spread. And um, and and so yeah, that's the situation, and that's why we have the red light district in Amsterdam. But in other cities, it's it's basically the same situation. And uh, does Amsterdam or does the Netherlands have safe injection rooms? Yes, yes, yeah. The the all the basically the next steps 
that harm reduction needs uh, and that I am working hard for here in the United States, uh, safe injection facilities, um, heroin distribution programs, um, safe use interventions, harm reduction interventions in prisons, uh, things like that are all implemented and basically normalized in the Netherlands. Uh, uh, the safe injection facilities and the uh, heroin distribution program since, I would say, since the mid-90s now. And, and, and all, you know, and harm reduction and all these different forms of harm reduction services are completely integrated into a system of uh, uh, drug care and treatment that is, uh, yeah, that's, that's comprehensive. Uh, it's completely accepted that the whole range should be available uh, because of the complexity that addiction is about. And, uh, uh, and harm reduction and uh, drug-free uh, treatment facilities are working closely together. There's easy referrals back and forth. Basically, the, the, the country is divided in, uh, in 12 districts that uh, all have their own um, um, yeah, treatment agency and with, with uh, bureaus in different cities. And, uh, and yeah, all the, all the different modalities are represented uh, so that people can choose uh, uh, wherever they are at the pace where they are, and, um, you know, and that's, yeah, that's how it's organized. And how does the Netherlands treat other drugs like uh, cocaine or LSD? Um, yeah, basically the same way. Um, uh, arrest for personal use. Uh, yeah, so when, when they find a small amount of cocaine, uh, LSD, ecstasy, heroin on you, uh, you won't get arrested. They won't even take it away most of the time. It, it, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit dependent on the discretion of the, of the officer you're dealing with and maybe the context, but uh, the particular situation. But uh, in general, uh, personal use is absolutely not seen as a punishable offense. Uh, uh, I've worked with a lot of police officers in, the, in, the, in my career in the Netherlands, and, uh, and they were basically very helpful in referring to us they if they would find someone who uh, uh was uh getting near an overdose or was really deteriorate they would drop them off at our agency at our offices and uh, and they would ask us to take care of him or her and uh, and that was the situation with uh, with the, with the dutch police very different from uh, my experiences in the bronx i must say Okay, that's a good point to transition. Uh, tell us right. a little bit about St. Anne's Corner in the Bronx. How long has this uh, program been around? Well, St. Anne's Corner was uh, started uh, in uh, the end of the 80s, basically in 1990, by Joyce Rivera, who is an, um, uh, was uh, born and raised in the Bronx ha uh, from a family, Puerto Rican family, with several siblings who contracted drug-related AIDS uh, at the time. And, um, and, you know, when her brother died and her sister appeared to be uh, positive, she decided that something has to be done. She was working for NDRI, uh, a research agency still existing here in uh, New York that do, does a lot of research in terms of uh, 
uh, drug use, addictions, and, and treatment. And, uh, and she decided uh, that something had to be done. And she started a uh, syringe exchange program out of the back of her car in St. Anne's Park in the South Bronx on the Saturdays. She basically approached one of the biggest drug dealers at the time in the Bronx, convinced him that uh, it would improve his product if she was able to do her thing, uh, HIV prevention for drug users, and he went along and uh, created space for her in the park because drug dealers at the time were like little mayors in their neighborhoods. Mm. And, um, and he would stop his operation, let Joyce do her thing and uh, work, you know, do the syringe exchange. And then once she was ready, she would leave and he would open his operation. And that's how St. Anne's was started as an illegal operation in one of the parks in the Bronx. And uh, in 93, because, um, uh, yeah, drug-related AIDS was running rampant in New York City, 65% uh, of injecting drug users was, uh, um, at the time, was infected with HIV-AIDS. So uh, it was a huge uh, public health issue. And so finally, the, the State Commission of Health de decided that it was a health emergency and that syringe exchange program should, should be started to be uh, implemented and funded by the state. Uh, that's what happened, and St. Anne's Corner of Harm Reduction was born uh, at that moment and became an, uh, a legal, state-funded syringe exchange program um, that gradually expanded and expanded into a multi-service multi agency, uh, which it is now. Uh, and, uh, yeah, basically we, we, we focus, we, it, 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 our, our, our core mission is still the, the doing syringe exchange and harm reduction services for injecting drug users and their families and children and, and but uh we we open our doors also for uh uh for other community members who use other drugs uh like alcohol who are uh and 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 people who who just i mean it's it's a very poor community um with a lot of issues, and, and as you might know, I mean, HIV-AIDS is related to, to bigger social problems like poverty, racism, etc. So, uh, so that's what we're trying to work with. And, um, and, and, and at the moment, we are, uh, if, 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 if you want me to give an overview of the kind of services we provide, uh, we have a big drop-in space where people, a lot of our participants are homeless, so... Uh, we provide shower services, breakfast, uh, there's a drop-in space. We have, um, uh, and, and, and in the drop-in space there is syringe exchange uh, possibilities. We also have two uh, spots outside in the community where we do syringe exchange and other services. Uh, basically we drop a tent and uh, on the sidewalk and, you know, and we, we work with, uh, with the people that, uh, that come by. Um, we also are, since uh, last year, uh, a soup kitchen, a formal soup kitchen. So we, we uh, uh, organize, uh, we have hot lunches every day, around 150, 100 and 150 uh, community members drop in and uh, utilize those uh, very basic services. And then we have um, uh, an another important thing besides those palliative services is the stress reduction. 
mm-hmm. users, substance users on the streets of New York, especially when you're homeless, live an awful life and and you know uh, a lot of stress and 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 harassment is is involved there and so. What we decided is before anyone can think even about change, let's uh, uh, let's create a sanctuary, a place where they can learn about stress and how to de-stress. Uh, and we provide acupuncture uh, and other stress reduction activities like uh, yoga, etc. Uh, we have all kinds of support groups. We have educational workshops. We do comprehensive risk counseling. We have we refer people to all kinds of places, including. Detox and drug treatment, of course. Um, we have mental health services. We do uh, HIV testing and counseling. We do hepatitis ca- uh, uh, testing. We do uh, STD uh, uh, testing. Um, well, that and then we have a number of uh, specific uh, services for women and couples regarding HIV/AIDS, and uh, basically aimed at safer sex. So it's a whole range of services, a whole palais of services that uh, that we provide now uh, to the community. Okay, very good. I believe that Pat Denning, in her new book, uh, second edition of Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, uh, she mentioned some papers that you had written about uh, harm reduction support groups. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell me what uh, what you've uh, learned about harm reduction support groups. What you've published. <coughs> And how they work? What 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 is um, well? We have a range of support groups from uh, you know gender based, so for uh, transgender people, for men, for women, for people with HIV, for people with hepatitis, uh, and and uh, what what we've seen is that it's very important to. Um, uh, again, when when you try to deal with the complexity of uh, of, a, of of dependency on substances, and and you realize uh, that is not a simple thing of saying yes or no or a rational decision. I start using t- tomorrow, or you know, I stop using today. No, uh, that just say no thing. And and that's the context in which a lot of in which you know people are raised, of course, in this country. And uh, and so what 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 we try to do through the uh, support groups is create an understanding and create the um, uh, yeah the, the the social structures in which people feel safe enough to start sharing their experiences to start um, recognizing that they're not on their own that there is much more uh, that there are more much more people who uh, uh, who are basically uh, uh, yeah having the same kind of life, the same kind of experiences, and from there, who might be able to uh, uh, to start supporting each other in in changing aspects of that, and always with you know within the harm reduction philosophy, never with the demand or the uh, the judgment that you know the little finger up of uh, you know you should you should stop using you should uh, you should do this you should do that no that's not uh, that's not how we work that's not how we t- it really is about um uh trying to uh to move people uh, towards understanding where they are what their pace is and what their possibilities are i like to talk about optimal autonomy 
you know some people will never be able to to move out of some kind of dependency on 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 uh, agencies like ours and and i don't think that is a problem that uh you know some people simply never had the opportunity to uh to make it on their own and uh they have uh, all kind of mental health issues uh, physical issues that play part in the mix that creates uh, the complexity that creates addiction and um, and so uh, you know that's what they have to deal with so what do you think are some of the differences between the harm reduction support groups and the more traditional 12 step uh, type support groups if you're comparing them well um well i guess the the harm reduction approach is is um well I'm, what we're doing is trying to stay away from the disease model i mean of course we know about it and of course we know that there are uh things to it that are absolutely applicable but i think that there is, i i tend more uh to look at uh, the whole process uh as an issue of um yeah uh it's 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 like you know it's it's about drug set and setting it's about the substance yes but it's also about the person and it's about the circumstances in which uh in which people have been brought up and and what they're using and so uh we, we what we try to do is uh, re bring back reinstate the sense of self reliance the 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 the, the sense of self efficacy uh how however uh you know however th that has disappeared because of past trauma because of depression because of uh whatever is the case in the, in, in 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 a certain person's individual situation but that's that's really what we uh, what we try to aim for and and to bring out the healthy parts and to work with the healthy parts in order to in order to to bring a more uh, you know an, a, a balance that that people can work with and 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 uh why why we don't want to tell someone you know you are diseased you have something that you will never get rid of until the end of your days is because we think that some people are able to get out of it and i've seen it many times that people are able to move on the most uh, uh incomprehensible uh, individual cases that i would never ever have experienced that uh, have expected that they would you know move move out of it out of their addictions out of the the lifestyle out of the the complete deterioration and were able to move on and uh, and live a, a you know a completely different life so I've stopped thinking that there is uh, something that that ties you down like that. I mean, uh, in that sense, I uh, we, we're very much uh, looking at Maslow, at uh, uh, the hierarchy of needs that you, and that's how we structure our services. That you, you know, you need you need to be certain and safe in certain things in order to to move on and uh, and, and 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 start changing. You know, little step by little step, but that's 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 how that's how we view it, and uh, and and the change comes from within. Uh, the possibilities to change are within ourselves, and often it is because nobody has ever pointed that out to uh, has ever pointed that out to uh, to these people that 
that it's not happening, that they're stuck uh, somewhere. And what we do is unstuck them. And that's... Uh, I, 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 I have a thinking about this... Uh, uh, this interview and the uh, and the the paradox of change that that I have learned from the 30 plus years that I work now with the hardcore drug users and and uh, and when I say drug users again I'm also talking about alcohol because most of the time that's part of the daily cocktail. The paradox of change that accepting people as they are is a major means of change. That there is an art of accepting people. Of, of, of making them feel safe and respecting them that brings out something that hasn't been tapped on or hardly before. And that when once that starts coming out, people change. The, and, and there is a quote from um, uh, Gabor Mate, a medical doctor who works at the safe injection facility in uh, Vancouver, that I... Uh, that I would like to, uh, you know, to, to 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 say here as a sort of an, an, an you know, a summary of mm-hmm, what I mean. Mm-hmm. And it says, it goes, thus for all the valid reasons we have for wanting the addict to just say no, we first need to offer him or her something to which he or she can say yes. We must provide that island of relief. We have to demonstrate that esteem, acceptance, Love and human interaction are realities in this world, contrary to what the addict has learned all his life. It is impossible to create that island for people unless they can feel secure that their substance dependency will be satisfied as long as they need it. That's a very good quote. You mentioned uh, the drugs and setting model. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with that. So could you define set and setting and tell us how that model works? Yeah, it's an old model uh, uh, presented to us by Norman Zinberg, uh, a great scholar in the, uh, in my opinion, in the, in the field of addiction. And um, he, 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 he presented this, this, uh, this new view in the 80s about uh, about addiction where he said, you know, it's not just about the substance. Of course, he said, it is about the drug. Uh, the action, the potency, what is it cut with, the route of administration, uh, legality of the substance, interactions with other drugs. Of course, those are important things, but there's much more going on, he said. There's also a set, meaning the person, the physiology of the person the psychology of the person, you know, the culture of origin and and the current identification, expectation of the drug. What do I expect when I take the drug? What is the motivation to use? And then there's the setting, the the environmental influence. Uh, Is there stress? With whom and where am I using? Uh, my social cultural attitude towards drugs, and you know, to, like the the difference between me being born and raised in in Amsterdam and having access to an uh, uh, to to a coffee shop where I can safely buy and use, while here in uh, in the in in New York City, uh, over the past year in 2011, more than 55,000 people were arrested for marijuana, you know. For, for personal use. I'm not talking about dealing, simply personal use. So that creates a completely, the setting is very important in my, in my experience of the, 
of the uh, of the substance. And so what what Zinberg, uh, you know, sort of summarizing what Zinberg said is the drug experience, just the drug experience neutrally, and problems with drugs are always the result of an interaction between these three major aspects: drug, set, and setting. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. You know, what you were saying before was reminding me of a quote by Carl Rogers. I think it's from him. When I can accept accept myself the way I truly am, that's when I'm truly able to start making a change. Yeah. That's that paradox of change that I was talking about. And it's so true. It's so true. I mean, I was trained as a psychologist in all the in all the different schools, psychoanalysis, behavioral therapy, Rogerian, all Gestalt, etc. And and um, and it's it's uh, you know the, the the thirty plus years of working with uh, with addiction and uh, uh, you know have uh, have have taught me a lot of beautiful things. And one of those things is this this paradox of change that when I accept people as they are, uh, you know, major. Major changes start occurring, and uh, and it's it's uh, people have a very hard time. And I train my staff, and I tell them, you have to get out of the way. Listen, listen to them. Invite their story out. Invite them out. Respect them, and invite them out. And but get out of the way with your agenda. It's not about you. It's not about what you've done with drugs in the past and how you got rid of them and how or or didn't or how you deal with it still in your life. No, it's 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 their story. And once you can really listen to their story and start working with that and journeying along, things start happening. I think that's absolutely true and you know, we also see what I see a lot is that the the more you tell people what to do, the more they want to do the opposite. I say every for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Right, right. Well, that's that's basically what we started talking about when we uh, uh, when I talked a little bit about the coffee shops in Holland and the levels of uh, of uh, of use in the in the Netherlands compared to the United States, and uh, and that you know the cannabis use is 50% lower in the Netherlands than in the U.S. Yeah, most people would never never ex- you know expect that and. Uh, but it's it is that well what you what you're pointing out it's that forbidden fruit thing you know you tell them don't do it and they do and and one of the things that I I, I also teach at John Jay College uh, a class on drug use and abuse and what I teach these kids is um, you know or, or we discuss uh, their their experience of alcohol for instance and the fact that uh, the limit uh, the alcohol limit is uh, is is put at 21. Uh, uh, in um, uh, in New York, and 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 what, what yeah, what, what's the effect of that? And and it's it's really interesting, uh, you know, to 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 discuss it and to uh, because in my country uh, it's 16, and uh, for wine and beer and uh, for heavier liquors uh, 18. But uh, yeah, it's much more that uh, that Mediterranean uh, diet model where you are gradually taught by your parents how to deal with alcohol because it's part of daily life. Yeah, I think so. That's something we've seen in research over and over again when uh, moderate drinking is modeled socially. You know, you get a lot of moderate drinkers. When you put out a lot of scary posters like in the U.S. of 
don't drink or you'll become an alcoholic like this and all this other stuff. You know, you get a lot of rebellion and a lot of heavy drinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, uh, I totally agree. Yes. Well, we're going to conclude this segment pretty, pretty soon now. So, uh, what final words would you like to leave us with? Well, I, I am. Um working for 16 years in uh, in the United States now and uh, and I don't intend to leave uh, uh I love to work and 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 what I try to implement and what I try to to teach people when I present when I teach my class is um is 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 this message of uh complexity and um and so, so the the, the to to try to to take out the moral judgmental approach, which can only result in punishment and more punishment and locking them up and and well, I I'm the first one to tell you that that doesn't work. Uh, if there is one big difference between the the same drug users that I worked with in the Netherlands as in the United States, it is it is their uh, rap sheet, it is their criminal criminal record. And and the, the the incredible barriers it creates with uh, uh, you know getting you know making changes going back to society reintegrating uh, that's you know the criminal uh, record is often the reason why they cannot get a job cannot get a loan cannot vote cannot this cannot that it is really a very um, it's 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 a big problem so. That is uh, absolutely one thing, and the, and the second thing I would like to leave you with is that uh, message of acceptance, that uh, ha- as an alternative to uh, moral and judgmental, um, the, the moral judgmental approach, the yeah the message of acceptance, try to accept and uh, and, 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 and 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 respect people in their uh, in their struggle. And and from there, you know, help them invoke that power from within, that locus of control, that inner locus of control, instead of the outer locus of control that we're so good at here. You know, pushing people into into prison, into treatment, into this, into that. You know, try to try to invite the the, the you know the adult, the, the 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 inner healer, instead of. Uh, the uh, yeah the, the the outer powers that will uh, whip you into shape. It doesn't seem to work. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Bart Major. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Ken. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold right now here, and uh, we're going to try to call out to our second guest. Our second guest hasn't called in. We're going to see if we can get a hold of her, and if we can't, we're going to just. Uh, Stop the show right here, so bear with me for one moment while I operate the machinery. Okay, we're dialing out now. Hi, it's Candace, and I completely forgot. Oh, it's okay. We got you on board, so we got some time left. We got about 22, 23 minutes left, uh, so I'm happy to have you here. Thank you. Uh, are we on? We are on the air right now. 
Uh, so, everyone, this is our guest, Candice Leitner, who was best known as the founder of MAD, and uh, who was moved on from that. She's working in other... I know she's working with a breathalyzer ignition interlock device and other things to do with prevention of drunk driving and drug driving. And if I can ask you just... We're just going to do a few minutes on your history with MAD and uh, tell us about a little bit about how you founded it. There's uh, a lot of rumors on the Internet about how you left, so would you just tell us in your own words uh, about that stuff? About how I founded MAD? Yes. Well, I'm, I think probably everybody's familiar with this story, but my daughter was killed by a multiple repeat offender drunk driver in um, on May 3rd of 1980. And the man was out on bail from another hit-and-run drunk driving crash several days um, before he killed her. And I thought, like most people would think, that he would go to prison for her death. And then I learned that that probably was not the case. And, in fact, the police said we were lucky if we'd see any jail time whatsoever, which I just found absolutely um, unbelievable. And so as a result of that... I went ahead and I started MAD, and um, I started it as a local organization, and I thought we'd just stay in California for about a year. But uh, within months of our first press conference, we became a national organization, and then soon an international organization. And uh, I know you were with MAD, I think, five years as uh, the director. And what prompted you to leave? Mm, time to move on. I needed to grieve for my daughter, and while I was mad with MAD, that was very difficult to do. In fact, um, in the book I wrote, Giving Sorrow Words, How to Cope with Grief and Get On With Your Life, I say that MAD dealt very well with my anger, and it did. Um, and, and Because the anger, I think, was so pervasive. Um, the anger over her death, the anger at the man who killed her, the anger at the system who allowed him to kill her, which I firmly believe they did. Um, the system did due to its laxity at the time, and and MAD was was great for that, but for grieving it wasn't so good. So I needed to get on with my life. I needed to grieve for my daughter, and I couldn't do it while I was still there. Okay, and what I I know you're currently involved with other projects about uh, mm -hmm. drinking and driving, and tell mm -hmm. us uh, what you're involved in with right now. Yeah, I feel like I'm back. <laughs> so funny. It's 30 years later and I'm back. Um, well, I'm very involved with ignition interlock devices. I think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. I have a client, Drager Safety Diagnostics, and that's um, one of their many products. And I honestly believe that if IIDs, ignition interlock devices, had been around when uh, before Carrie was killed, I, I really believe that she'd be alive today because the man who killed her, being a multiple repeat offender, would have had, hopefully, uh, had to have had an IID on his car. So I think they're life-saving devices. I think um, every drunk, convicted drunk driver should have them. They should be mandated on every convicted drunk driver. I think it's only the best thing for the public safety. So... Um, and the other thing I'm very involved in as a result of um, my work with Draker is drugged driving, and that's driving under the influence of drugs, and which is becoming, by the way, uh, it, uh, uh, almost as serious a problem as drunk driving. 
And if you look at all the research that's been done lately, you know, they show that driving under the influence of marijuana increases your risk by more than two times of having a crash. And right now we're seeing, thanks to roadside surveys and stuff, um, you know, more and more people are driving under the influence, not just of marijuana, but of all drugs, um, sometimes multiple drugs at the same time, plus um, drugs, plus alcohol. And unfortunately, it's a bit harder to detect, so they're not um, being removed from the roads um, the same way that drunk drivers are. And so, to me, this is a problem that's going to reach crisis proportions if we don't do something about it now. Are illegal drugs the only problem, or are prescription drugs a problem here, too? Oh, they're a problem, too. In fact, I'm in Florida, as you know, and I heard... Um, that Florida has one of the highest rates, I'm not sure if this is correct, but one of the highest rates of um, of crashes, I think fatal crashes of those over 50 who are polydrug users, all legal drugs. So definitely prescription drugs are a major problem too. And one of the things that, that we promote is zero tolerance, meaning like a zero per se, as you, ha- as you know, you have a .08 per se for alcohol. And we promote a zero per se for drugs, and that means all drugs, both legal and illegal um, drugs, because it facilitates prosecution and it and it gets these people off the road. But you're right, prescription drugs is a major problem, also. Yes, and even though the legal limit is uh, 0.08 uh, mm-hmm. throughout the U.S., uh, most states, I think, if not all states also uh, have laws that uh, touch on impaired driving for people that are under .08, and so it's really not worthwhile to even to drink and drive at all, any amount of alcohol at all. Well, there's the presumptive level, and I think in most states, I could be wrong because it's been a while since I've dealt with that. It's a .05. In some states, it may be a .02. And you're right, in other countries, the per se level is is lower than it is in our country. But, I, you know, I've always said this because I think sometimes it's almost impractical to say to people, don't drink and drive because they're going to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's reality. So I always say, know your limit. And most reasonable people do. And if you know that you can have one drink with dinner or whatever, and you still feel fairly confident about your driving, um, you know, just remember that you're going to be out on the road with other people who have probably had more than one drink with dinner. And, of course, now we have the big problem of distracted driving where everybody's on their damn cell phone while they're in the car and Mm -hmm. texting and everything else. So you've got all kinds of other risks um, coming at you. But um, I think, you know, if you know your limit and you're cautious and careful, um, you know, you just have to be realistic. I mean, the best thing to do is to get a designated driver or, you know, use, I don't know, taxis or, depending upon where you live, uh, public transport. Mm-hmm. I was talking the other day to a member of my support group. Uh, we were discussing this issue, and she was saying uh, that uh, she was going to make sure that she was under point oh eight limit, you know, uh, <laughs> How did she, she know that? <laughs> before she drove, she was, uh, yeah, this is what we were discussing. And I said, you know, before you even think about that, because there are other laws, you can be held liable in an accident even if you're below point oh eight. And I said, check out the laws of your state, you know, before you make your decision. And she went on the Internet and looked up all the state laws in the state she lived in. She came back the next day and said, 
I'm taking the bus. <laughs> I mean, how would you know if you're at a point oh eight? I mean, you know, I think, I mean, it's like, what, what, do you carry a portable breathalyzer around with you and double check it? But even so, point oh eight isn't a safe level for a lot of people. Um, there's there's so much research um, that shows that, you know, most people are impaired um, at a point oh eight. So I think um, I just I don't know if you remember this, but I remember after I started mad, they started putting these oh I don't know breathalyzers in bars, which we objected to strenuously because people would drink until they got up to at that time it was a point one oh a point one oh and think oh they're fine they can drive home and that's not necessarily true so. Um, by know your limit, I mean, you know, maybe one drink or two drinks at the most, you know, and try and be practical. Um, but, you know, if you don't know your limit, don't do it at all, let's face it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what my person had did, discovered was the laws in her state were so strict on uh, impaired driving on people even below the legal limit that it was never worth risking. And she said, I'm never going to drink and drive again. Any amount of alcohol is just too many. <laughs> So many consequences out there. And this is actually how I deal now with people who say, well, it might be okay to drink and drive. I say, uh, look at your state laws first, because laws all over have gotten very strict, even on, you know, anything at all. So it's probably, you know, most people, after they investigate, they seem to come back and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I remember when I was doing MAD, um, we had done... I think it was a, it was a, I was doing radio interviews and I had done a radio interview and it was when Matt first started. And I can remember Nitsa telling me that it would take years and years before we changed people's attitudes. And this is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And I can't remember, I think the radio interview was in Sacramento, I'm not sure, but I do remember that when I got home, um, I received a call from this woman who told me that her kids played little league and they, you know, played their game and they'd won. And they normally, when that happened, the parents and the kids would all go to this local pizza place and they'd have the kids would have pizza and coke and the parents would have pizza and beer. And she said they were listening to my radio interview on the way to the restaurant and she said it was so funny because it was like a caravan of cars and I guess many of them had been listening and she said when they got to the restaurant um, and they ordered the pizza for the kids they all looked at each other and decided that they would opt out of ordering beer for for them and that they would not do that anymore and I thought wow you know it really is making a difference I mean you know, it's, it, it really is going to impact people when you unfortunately hear these stories of the victims and stuff. It does make people stop and think twice, and it's simply not worth the risk, you know. It's not just the laws that, to me, are the issue. It's the fact that you might take a life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's also important, but, you know, I think that we we have to think about what influences people, and in in the case of my group, I, I find that when people look up the laws, they they're more likely to make the decision. Then, and I mean, because I've often tried to tell people, you know, it's not worth taking a life, but they say that. Mm-hmm. But then they want to. Say I mean, I think whatever works works. Yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. I'm like, there's there's more than one way to avoid drinking and driving, and my solution, I don't drive. I never have. So 
I've never how do you get to how do you get from one place to another? Well, fortunately, I'm in New York City now. Ah, uh, yes, I've been there. You can walk, you can taxi, and you can take the um, metro or the subway. Yeah. So, right? No, and the, you know that's true too. If you live in D.C. and Virginia and a lot of other places, and and you know when I was doing MAD, there were a number of um, documented cases of alcoholics who did not drive. They drank, but they did not drive. And I used to hear from them, and they would call me and they would tell me, you know, I I'm an alcoholic. I do drink, you know, but I just want you to know I don't drive, and um, which I appreciated greatly. And I think when we talked about people drinking and driving, especially those um, who abused alcohol, to me they were criminal abusers of the drug alcohol. So it's like, you know, if you want to drink, fine, stay home or drink at home or, like we said before, you know, take a use a designated driver, um, which is something that came into being when Matt started. I think it was a program that NHTSA used to use that we sort of took up and, and ran with, and especially for prom night remember when we used to do the, mm-hmm, the prom mm-hmm. night um ads and stuff about you know use a limousine or get a designated driver actually in those days i don't know if it's still true but in those days the restaurants would offer free coke or free non-alcoholic beverages to the designated driver which i thought was a very good thing to do because it showed they supported that concept and um, and I don't know if they still do it. Probably not. But if not, it's certainly a good idea. And they used to do ads and stuff about the designated driver um, after we started doing that. So, I mean, you're right. There are all kinds of ways of avoiding um, getting yourself in trouble. Oh, yeah. We had a guy on our show a couple weeks ago who started an organization called Safe Rides Unlimited, He's Mm -hmm. uh, based in New Jersey. He's in the Mm -hmm. New York, New Jersey area. Mm -hmm. And he gives you limo rides Mm -hmm. to and from. And, you know, when he books a group, what happens is these clubs are like they're waiving half of the the fee, the entrance fee. What what do you call it? Um, The restaurants are waiving half the entrance fee if you use safe rides? Yeah. Yeah, which is a... Yeah, did you know there's actually a safe rides out of San Diego and there's a Y drive, I think if they're still in existence out of Georgia, I think Atlanta, that do the same thing, which I think is really a great idea. Um and and they do work with their local bars and restaurants who uh do promote this concept and I think it's really a, a just and, and sports arenas and um other entities as well and i think it's i think it's really terrific yeah it worked out that the people are actually getting into the clubs cheaper than if they actually mm-hmm. had to pay the cover charge yeah hey everybody wins so um another place that i lived for a long time was in japan for 6 years and that's another mm-hmm. place where mm-hmm. drinking and driving is not very common i just did the math a couple days ago because I was writing about this topic and there are 21 times more uh, alcohol-related automobile fatalities in the U.S. than Japan. Well, I lived in Japan, too. Japan has an entirely different culture, as you know, than we do, and it's it isn't, number one, getting drunk there is not socially acceptable, as it is here. <clears throat> And in fact, in Japan, if you're arrested for drunk driving, 
one of the things that they have you do, I know I participated in a documentary um, uh, that was um, produced by the, by the Japanese, is they have you bow every morning, um, acknowledging your acts and <clears throat> and seeking forgiveness um, from your victims. We don't do that in this country because we don't believe in accepting responsibility. Um, but I also lived in Germany, and I remember when I went to Fasching, and I was 19 at the time, and in those days you could drink in Germany at just about any age. And I remember my German friends all said to me, you're going to leave your car at home, aren't you? And I said, why? And they said, because you're going to be drinking beer, and um, and you don't want to have a problem, and so it's really much better for you to take a taxi. And I was 19, and I remember hearing that in Germany. I came back to America, and I never had anybody tell me that. I never had anybody say, oh, we're going out drinking, let's take a taxi. It just wasn't done. So in other countries, it was far more socially unacceptable to behave like that than it was in this country, frankly, until MAD came along. It was very socially acceptable um, until after I started MAD, and then and then attitudes began to change. But that wasn't true in other countries. Yeah, I remember when I was living in Japan, and it would be riding the riding a subways home between, say, uh, oh, about midnight or so, you know, the whole place is, the whole train is full of drunks. And, you know, lots of them would be falling asleep, you know. It's one thing, it's it's not safe to pass out on a subway in New York, but on the subway in Japan, I, I passed out a few times and rolled back and forth on the tracks. <laughs> I wonder if that's still true. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but it definitely it's just you know it's 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 just a, it's a different it was a different culture and a different mindset um but in this country i mean i can remember you know comedians making jokes out of drunk driving i can remember them showing it on tv shows like it was really funny and one of the first things that we did was tackle that issue we we met with producers um of shows such as cheers and asked them if they could kindly at least say something on the show about not drinking and driving, which they did, um, and asked other shows as well not to display it as something humorous, and it stopped. I mean, you know, it just eventually it stopped. It's kind of like cigarette smoking, which you rarely see in a movie anymore. Well, the same is true of drunk driving. I'm used to see it in TV series. You just don't anymore. Yeah, cigarette smoking is very unpopular. Uh, one thing, the ignition interlock device, mm-hmm. my opinion, I would like to see this made standard on every automobile in the U.S., just like seatbelts. That's interesting. Well, I know they've got a program coming down the road that eventually will do that. I, uh, Although I believe strongly in IIDs, I, I probably have a bit different feeling than you do about that. I I definitely think it should be a choice and an option, um, especially for parents who are buying their children a car. But um, there is a program called, I think it's called Dads, and they, they're working with NHTSA right now on this very, very same concept. And I think they predict that within the, I'm not real knowledgeable about it, but maybe in the next 10 to 20 years, um, you know, this device will be available for all cars, and 
whether or not it will be made standard. I'm not sure if that's a legislative issue or not, but I can tell you this, that even if it is, drunk drivers will find ways to to work around it. They're not going to buy new cars. They'll keep their old cars. They'll, um, believe me, just like they try and work around the IIDs right now and find all kinds of excuses not to use them. So um, to me, I I think, you know, I think IIDs are really fantastic. I also think we still need to deal with education. We still need to reach out to our youth, and we still need other things as well. Well, there's no mechanical device that's going to stop everybody. But if you could stop three-quarters of the people, and it's only one-quarter that are going to circumvent the device, then you've certainly stopped an awful lot of people. Well, I have a different philosophy than you do, so we'll just agree to disagree. It's my firm belief that those who want to drink and drive are not going to go out and get these cars, and those who don't drink and drive are are going to do it. So I'm not sure it's going to make that much of a difference if they're mandated on all cars. But who's to say, you know? <laughs> well, it's say? Just, well, that's always just a personal opinion of mine because uh, – we are a nonprofit, and we don't engage in any legislation. Legislation is outside of our charter, so our organization doesn't work on that. Myself, personally, I, I'd like to see it. I think it would be good, but I don't know. Lots of people. Well, you should. With you me. should. Yeah. No, there are a lot of people that I'm sure do agree, and there are a lot of people that I know don't. But um, I do think it should be made available, and and it may now. It's very possible. Um, that you might be able to, you know, purchase an IID now if your kid's getting ready to drive or something. Um, you know, I can sh- I'm can, i sure you can check with the, the different companies and probably put it on your own car. Um, mm-hmm. To my knowledge, it isn't forbidden. So um, I certainly have a, I have a device for my car. So I would think that, you know, you could get a device, not you personally since you don't drive, but other people might be able to do that for themselves. Um, but I definitely do think it should always. I think it should be an option, no question about it. Well, I knew a counselor. I think in 2001, he was uh, a chemical dependency counselor, and he said, "You know, I'm putting this device on my own car." Mm-hmm. He set an example for my clients that are getting mm-hmm. mandated to have mm-hmm. this device, and you see, I'm happy to have it myself because I don't want to drink and drive. I think it's great, and I I do. I think people that do that are very wise and very smart, and like I said, I think it should be mandated for all convicted drunk drivers, first, second, third, and on up. And I think even after you're released from prison for um, if you've committed a felony, I think you should have to use an IID. I think an IID should have to be placed on your car. I don't think it should be um, time-based. In other words, the removal shouldn't be based on six months to a year, but it should be performance-based. And, um, in fact, one of the things they're finding out about ignition interlock devices is that it's becoming a predictor of what kind of um, driving that person is going to do after the device is off. Um, So it gives you an idea of how safe that person is going to be after the device is off. Um, So, I mean, I just think, um, like I said, I wish it had been around, you know, 35 years ago. Now, the one other push that I would like to see that I think is really important is to have more public transportation available everywhere mm-hmm. in the U.S., mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. it's a really important thing, but I think a lot of people are opposed to public transportation in the U.S. Gee, that I didn't know. I mean, I agree with you, and I don't know why anybody wouldn't. Um just would make life so much easier for so many people. Well, you know, 
we used to have in a lot of places in the U.S. There used to be streetcar systems all over, and the uh, oil companies and the auto companies legis- lobbied and lobbied in, uh, you know, from the 30s to the 60s to tear them all out. Really? I know uh-huh. that happened in Minneapolis, uh-huh. St. Paul. I've heard the same yeah. story happened in a lot of other places. Yeah. Um, you know, you could sell you could sell more cars and you could sell more oil if you didn't have an alternative. Huh, interesting. Did not know that. Really interesting. But hmm. well, I think that's uh, one of the other things that we really could do. Not only is it convenient, but it definitely gives people an alternative and they don't have they don't have to drive drunk. I mean, no one ever has to drive drunk. I don't think there's any excuse and any reason why anyone should ever get into a car under the influence of alcohol or talk on the You know, cell, it seems to me either, that if, if that's correct about the, the automobile industry, this is a good example of if people really, really want public transportation, then they should do whatever that they need to do to get it. You know, to if it's a legislative issue, lobby their legislators. If it's a city issue, lobby their cities. Um, you know, this is the problem, I think, nowadays, is that people have become very apathetic. I really mm-hmm. do in mm-hmm. some areas. And they, they don't either, they either don't realize they can make a difference. In reality, they can. Um, I firmly believe in the power of the people. I also believe in the power of one, as we all know. Um, or they're just, you know, so involved with so many other things that some of this stuff goes by the wayside. But, you know, I think if this is something important to people, that they should do something about it. I think you're correct. And I because I've heard stories recently on the news that the people that are fighting against public transportation are the Tea Party. And they're very active in, you know, in putting their views forth. So that's a good mm-hmm. thing. I don't agree with mm-hmm. their views mm-hmm. on uh, mm-hmm. this subject or a lot of them. But, you know, some of the rest of us need to get off our butts and put our right. views forth, too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So there you go. You've got a new movement. <laughs> <laughs> Public transportation. <laughs> well, I certainly support it, but I have a full-time job just running the Hams Harm Reduction Network. So, And I think it's about... Uh, Time to uh, finish up our show for the evening. Uh, so, everyone, join us again next week on March 1st, Thursday, when our guest will be Ann Fletcher, who is the author of Sober for Good. And uh, we have a representative from Drager, Scott Elting, who will be talking more about the breathalyzer ignition interlock. So, thank you, everyone, and good night. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.